Hello, everybody, and happy Friday, if you're listening on Friday. Uh, this is Backport Stories with Chuck Stead. We are back. I believe this is Backport Story number six in our third season. And we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Chuck's formative year in kindergarten again, uh, which is uh, pretty interesting because that's pretty much uh, what happens in kindergarten kind of stays with you for the rest of your life, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. sure. So what's our story today? Hookie at Indian's Cove. Okay, without any further ado, take it away, Mr. Stead. Come spring of my first year at school, Miss Morrison happily marched us out for extra long recess. Our playground was an asphalt square, just out of the kindergarten doors. It was black as coal and smoother than any of the village roads. On the weekends, when school was not open, Teenagers brought their steel-wheel strap-on skates to this square drop of asphalt and pumped their legs, circling each other to the shrill squeal of their metal skates. The only other surface this smooth in the village was Lake Road, down along the thruway fence, an area that bordered the east bank of the fountain pond. It was the newest road in the village. The older kids called this the smooth road and could be found strapping into their ungainly steel skates down there. But at age five, I came to regard the playground at the school, the safe blacktop, as the smooth road was shared with occasional passing vehicles. When Miss Morrison led us out into the playground, we tore into the morning sun recess with a wild abandon, screaming at the top of our lungs. Ours was the first recess of the day, and despite our size, we were the loudest. In fact, the principal a woman whom I shuddered to think might recall my attack on her fierce yellowed smile, requested that Miss Morrison subdue our jubilation. But we were not to be contained. I think it was Jojo who started this business of screaming as we poured out into recess. He was an angular, worried-faced boy whose dark eyes regularly bore into you, as if he could study the contents of your very stomach. He didn't speak up all that much, and through the long passage of a heavy winter he was subdued. But with the first sign of a thaw, he came to life, chatty in the classroom and explosive on the playground. Clearly, if Jojo was any indication of class morale, we longed to get outside and celebrate every opportunity to do so. Our classroom was a brick addition to the old school building. The man my mother called your Uncle Mal, when she was in a friendly mood, and various other things when she was not so friendly, regularly insisted on telling Tadpole and me the history of the school building. We had never asked for this, and often avoided it. It was a long story, and included the history of many other things. This is not to say that Uncle Mal wasn't interesting. In fact, he was the best storyteller of the elders, since the passing, that is, of heebie-jeebie. But the story of the school meandered and felt very much incomplete, this is how it usually went. Well, sir, that building, the one you're in, the brick one, it's a new addition. It, it, it's what it is, really. Of course, now, the old school building ain't the first one that was there neither. No, sir, no, sir. There, there was one put up there sometime before I was even born. You, you see, the village, the village used to be called Woodburn. Mm -hmm. And its first school was called the Little Woodburn School. The, the stucco stone one that's uh, there now replaced it. 
Woodburn School. You know, that's what it was called. Now, now this name Woodburn is what James Suffern used to call the village back in his day when he owned a sawmill down here. And James, he was the grandson of John Suffern, who is the man that the village of Suffern got named after. You see how that works? Now, James, he sold this little piece of the Ramapo Valley to a fellow named William W. Snow. And and he, along with two other fellows named George Coffin and George Church, they planned the whole village of Woodburn. They, they started their street building over on 1st Street. They put up some two-family houses, and then they carved out 2nd Street and 3rd Street and so forth. Snow, he was an ironworks fellow. He come along to start up the wheel and foundry works here in Ramapo. Of course, now, it was the Pearson brothers who first brought industry into the valley, and that was back in the 1790s. Actually, at age five, I never got past the names Church, Coffin, and Snow. Listening to the curious undulations of Mal's voice, I drifted off to a place in a black-and-white past and wondered, if a man died in the snow, would he be buried by the church in a coffin? Jojo, who Tadpole called Dog-Faced Boy, and in return Jojo dubbed him Booger Reader, streamed across the morning asphalt with our entire class in hot pursuit. He swung on to the single iron pole that centered a top hoop with no backboard and shimmied up like kind of ape as it were, kind of swinging around and making monkey sounds until he was dangling from the rim, listing from the pole, and a boy smaller than he, who was tawny-colored skinned and gleamed copper-like in the April sun, grabbed at Jojo's sneakers and shook him until he fell down. They tumbled together, a knot of swinging arms and legs rolling across the blacktop, commanding Miss Morrison's attention, with most of the class following her. That's when I slunk to the back side of the building, unnoticed by authorities and followed a path up through some broken rock into the wet edge of the forest. Cindy Maloney came up the bank close behind me, and behind her, Tadpole hurried along. Jojo's diversion allowed for our escape. Although Cindy, nor I, we had not planned on Tadpole coming along, he snickered away at our truancy and offered a detailed narrative of the event. Three kids up the hill in in the woods on the rocks. Mm -hmm. Three kids, a a girl, two boys, not a school now. Three kids breaking rules. Three kids, free kids. They're going where, where? Don't, Don't know where, don't know where. Cindy turned around and said, what are you talking so much for? He looked at her. He waited a second or two and he said, why are you asking that? She shook her head and then let him go. She turned around, she looked at me, she looked annoyed. I knew that Tadpole often talked a good bit, sometimes fast and without any provocation. Cindy, on the other hand, seemed to keep her talking to a minimum. She walked around me and led the way further into the woods. I followed her, and Tadpole followed me, mumbling something to himself about bossy girls. The path we walked along was well-worn, carpeted with a slick skin of brown leaves. The low thicket growth was all rust-colored in tiny sharp buds. Everything was moist and cool to the touch, despite the warm April air. Blue jays swung in overhead, caw-cawed back and forth furiously. They were hungry. I thought about that. Maybe they're angry. Blue jays, I had discovered, made a big fuss about everything. Ricky's grandmother believed that they ate the young of the songbirds. I wasn't sure that they did this. But their caw-cawing, along with the starlings' rattle-rattle, it all started becoming familiar to me in those years. 
These were not my favorite birds. I like cardinals for their color and their fruity sound that hung close in the evening. And I had grown fond of mockingbird, especially one that stood atop the Cramshaw barn and let you know the names of everybody in the neighborhood, that is, if you knew their songs. Early spring brought back the geese, some ducks, and through the month, numerous songbirds. House cats throughout the village returned to the cold streets, their heads skyward, anticipating a feathered food. One jay dropped down and buzzed just a few feet over Cindy's head. She ducked and then riveted her eyes on the bird. Could be they're building a nest here someplace, you know. They don't like us being in their neighborhood. She said this, eyeballing the meander of the jay's flight. Tadpole's nose started running. Heavy drips hung free from both sides. He sniffed the loose juice back into his head. He rubbed the remainder with his sleeve. My dad says blue jays is bad for hunters. They, they always call out when, when they see a person in the woods. Cindy looked at him. They call out even when they don't see a person. She turned about and continued along the path. We followed her up, an almost vertical cut to a layered granite. I stood there looking at this giant wedge of stone cake, and another slice was just to one side with a great overhang skin of icing. And back of these two, the rest of the cake went up the hill. This place, this big rocky place, was called Indian's Cove, as it figured in someone's memory that Indians used to camp beneath the overhang. In the center of the boulders was a steep courtyard, furnished with a few massive crumbs of granite, sugared with quartz. The cove, not really a cove in a traditional sense, was furrowed with narrow channels and crevices inviting exploration. It was also littered with long-necked beer bottles that emerged after the thaw. Cindy stepped over the fragments of shattered caramel brown glass and hunkered down at the only comfortable stone in the courtyard. She settled in. Tadpole, he found a bottle to his liking and proceeded to nudge it free from the frozen leaves with his right foot. Doing this, he balanced himself over his left leg and swung his arms out for leverage. He looked like some struggling broken wind-up toy. I leaned up against the washboard veins of granite and I looked at Cindy. She passed both of her hands over the top of her muskrat-colored hair and down along her Indian braids that hung free from her shoulders. We three had escaped Miss Morrison's watchful eye. We were truant. We had broken the law. But now what? And we were not alone. The sound, a slow foot-thump into solid earth, followed by another thump, came from behind the boulder, the boulder of the overhang. Silently, we three gathered to one side of the courtyard and waited. The shuffling worked down alongside the overhang and stopped just short of turning the corner. Then a thick, pale hand, a man's hand with soft pink fingers, felt around the crusty granite until it found a sure grip and firmly pulled the rest of himself into view. It was Fagin. He stood there before us, dressed in a long denim work jacket with the collar turned up around his gathered chins. He was otherwise still wrapped in winter wear, leather Herman uppers, heavy cord trousers, wool-checkered jack shirt, and his engine-red stock cap. Fagin's baby blue eyes took us all in, measured our presence as he caught his breath. Then in his sing-song voice, he said, Ain't you urchins being schooled for a rule or two this time of day?
I nodded. Well, hell, don't you go co-climbing during school time? We said nothing. He studied us. His great round face drew back and doubled his quantity of chins. Now, I ain't no one to, to shut down your fun, but we all gots to go to a little school sometime. Cindy, the least startled by him showing up, said, You do much school, Fagin? He drew his soft white skin into a map of gentle wrinkles across his face. Oh, uh, I done finished up six grades. You ask Steadhead there. His daddy knows. I done my school in time. Yeah? So what you learn in them grades? Me? Hmm. He took a stance toward the middle of the cove. He looked up the hillside and as much addressed McGregor Mountain as he did us. Me, I, I took to learning about the Constitution and about them fellows that done fought off the English redcoats. You know, me, me, I, I learned some arithmetic. I learned some writing and some rules about how not to be a miserable son of a bitch. Me, I, I done my school in time, and there ain't no fooling around about that time. Tadpole, who up to now was so quiet that I forgot he was even with us, he burst in with a sudden sound of a question. Why sometimes you rhyme things and sometimes you don't? Fagin grinned. Ain't always so much that a rhyme comes along like a song. It's just a thing to do, you know, to do a thing to do. Tadpole fired off a sudden heap of single-sounding rhyme. Run, gun, fun, done, sun, come, come, one, slung, hung. Fagin shook his head. Whoa, little stead, ain't, ain't no way to rhyme in such as that. He struck a, another pose and stared up the highest wall of the cove toward the north. We watched him. This time he spoke. He gestured wildly with his arms outstretched overhead. When first I took my words in hand, I don't really understand. He looked about the rock walls and down to the three of us, as if waiting for some support, some word or two, on which to lean his story. He said, well, he said nothing for the moment, and we said nothing. It was quiet. He shook his capped head, and he started in again. When first I took my words in hand, I don't really understand that I would word out such verse of this or that and would not curse, no, no curse, lessen some such no-so stomp my foot, cause in my shoe is where I put my own five toes, and more than that— all the else leads up to my hat. When he finished, he looked down and grinned his square yellow teeth happily. And we were impressed, although we had no idea what it meant. It was the rhythm of the thing that carried it along. Tadpole demanded that he repeat it, but no, no, Fagin said there were no repeats. This place, you know, he looked around, this Indian's cove is spirited with the souls of them that's long dead now. Cindy said, could be Indian ghosts here, maybe. Mm, we we knocked hell out of them Indians, and what for? They's, they's here first, and they's got it all took away from them. If in there any Indian ghosts around here, it's cause we done them in. Tadpole sneered. I don't care about no Indians. Best you care, little stead. Them's that been knocked dead. Maybe they take a listen to your peevin about not caring. Maybe they sneak up and scalp your little fuzz off in your headstead. 
So, Cindy said, drawing back on her feet, they bury dead Indians in this place? No, no. Uh, well, don't know so. Could be they come here for burning up some of their dead, maybe. They, they get in a cove here, make a right nice fire, smoking them bodies. The way the cove is, it'd make a good flu, you know, and and it'd go right up into the air. That's where they go, and that's how their spirits get into all the other things around the village, by going into the air. What? What? Tadpole stared at him. Spirits in the village? You mean like ghosts everywhere? Yes, like in the rocks. Oh, that ain't so bad. They can be in the rocks too. Tadpole shook his head. Stuck in the ground. No way to get around. Ha, see, that's a rhyme. You're thinking like you do, but maybe a rock don't think like you. Tadpole leapt across the threshold of the cove and kicked wildly at a lump of damp leaves. Thinking stinking rocks, blocks of rocks, snock rocks, thinking stinking rocks. Fagin stopped. He smiled at him. Could be your little hooky snookies ought to get back to schooling. No fooling around now. They'd be looking for you. We turned and walked back down the hill. Cindy led the way. Tadpole tagging alongside nearest her. I followed slowly, pausing to look back at old Fagin, who remained behind at the cove. He was still talking. He was still talking as if we were there. Only he was looking up. He was looking up at the sky. This was kindergarten. Sure it was. Mm. And a new character, Fagin, mm. who uh, is a character that is very pronounced in uh, in Oliver, the yes. musical. And yes. where, so tell me more about Fagin. Who was he? Uh, uh, Fagin, he was a, a fellow who lived in the village who was, I guess you would say he was handicapped, I guess you would say. I guess he would fall into that classification. He was a great guy. He was such an interesting guy. Uh, I wrote a poem about Fagin and called him Ozo at that time because I was thinking of the way he rhymed things, so I named him Ozo. And in fact, in the book, I had to change that because I still called him Ozo. Ozo is a word that he made up one time, and I remembered that, so I just dubbed him Ozo for the the poem. That was years ago. But Fagin... uh, he was, well, first of all, he was completely harmless. Uh, he, was, uh, he roamed the village periodically. Uh, you'd bump into him at any given time because he just sort of roamed around. And he was very fond of Uncle Mal. And, and Mal was one of the people who kind of mentored him. Uh, Fagin uh, had a, a compensation fund from something, and he had some money. And so he bought a really nice camera but had no idea how to use it. So Mal taught him. Mal was into photography. And um, the, the thing that Fagin couldn't seem to uh, get accustomed to, remember those old days, those SLRs had light meters, sure. it, separate light meters that you used. Yep. So Mal would meet him in the morning at the paint shop, and they would uh, go outside, and he would set the light meter to establish what would be worthy of Fagin taking photographs, say, around the railroad tracks. And then Fagin would go off and walk around the railroad tracks and take all of these pictures. Mm-hmm. And then come back and, and have them made into slides. He didn't own a projector, so he'd give the slides back to Mal. And uh, when we ended the paint shop, I think that was around 1983 or so, uh, in one box I found cartons of slides. Mm. And the slides were phenomenal. They were all pictures, sometimes 50, 60 pictures of the same railroad track. 
just <laughs> continuous. <laughs> like yeah. that, that slideshow yeah. would be very uh, abstract art, you could say. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> but what was interesting was he was also a good photographer, despite the fact that he was excessive in his studies. The prettiest photograph I've ever seen of my sister Terry, Fagan took when she was okay. an adult and visiting Hilburn uh, years later. Yeah. And, uh, and in one shot, he took this phenomenal picture and then got it processed and mailed it to her. She was up in Cape Cod by then. So, so Fagan was this very interesting guy. Now, he wanted to go hunting. So he would join the men for hunting at the paint shop. And he had a shotgun. He had a hunting license and all that sort of stuff. But he really never shot anything. He would go off in the woods, uh, a little bit not unlike Uncle Joe. You know, he would go off in mm-hmm. the woods and he would do it all. He'd go through all the motions, but uh, he really didn't shoot much. And um, this one time when I was in high school, my friend Bob Fazio's father came to pick Bob up. He and I were hanging out at the at the paint shop, and it was during hunting season. And Mr. Fazio came in, and Fagan he listened to all of us, and he talked excessively, but he also listened to all the people, and. Mr. Fazio, Robert Fazio, met Fagan, who proceeded to tell him hunting stories, phenomenal hunting stories. And a few days later, he said to me, you know, I was up at your, your father and uncle's paint shop, and I met that fellow Fagan. Wow, what a magnificent hunter he is. Because in Fagan's stories, he did all those activities. <laughs> and, and I said, no, 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 that's not really... You couldn't convince Fazio otherwise, because the stories were so authentic, and they were authentic, coming yeah. from Fagan... But he didn't do those things. But he listened to other right. people tell those stories. And he could lend himself to the rhythm of your speech. He could wow. do that. And so when he told the stories, they just had the authenticity of whatever, whatever it is you had when you told the story. And they became his. And, you know, sometimes they were a lot better coming out of Fagan than they were out of the originals. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, yeah, he was, he was quite the character. Yeah. Do you think you learned any storytelling art from him? Or? I think so. Uh, his real name was Norman Dean. Uh-huh. He had a, and, and the okay. Deans ran a, in Suffern, they had a flag and, and banner shop. Okay. And, uh, but he didn't really work. And uh, he had, um, I, I think if anything, I picked up on his, his magical presence. He was not dominant. And he had this kind of presence, like when he's talking to us in that story, he's talking to us, but then he's talking to the rocks and the air. You know, he's, it's, he sort of drifts off and then comes back in again. Yeah. So he's sort of like performance art. Yeah. I mean, there'll be people, well, maybe they're not around anymore. There'll be people who would say, oh, Chuck, you're really, <laughs> you're stretching this one. He was just a fool. No, uh, you know, don't, don't risk missing the, uh, the brilliance of a personality that's a little different by dismissing them with the banner of fool you know he he sure. had he had uh, i had some really good conversations with him when i when i got a little older sounds like he had the light you know he did he yeah. did in in native culture uh a person who um steps out of the norm and may even be a person who's you know mentally or psychologically challenged is considered a privileged person mm-hmm. that person is in in more direct relationship with creator than the rest of us because we're so busy. And that's why we don't always understand their perspective, but that's why we need to allow for them. We need to take care of them because, you know, they're, they're in this privileged place. Yeah, there's a, there's a wonderful book that really deals with this, and I got a chance to meet and become friends with a gentleman by the name of Christopher DeVink, and his book is The Power of the Powerless, and he speaks, he wrote a book about his brother who was 
really what you would call a, a child in a vegetative state, uh, you know, no mental capacity at all. And yet, you know, as did my sister Ellie, who was severely autistic, they taught us compassion and the value of being able to speak and see and understand and engage with other people. Ellie probably had more to do with my forming who I've become and who I am today and my heart and my soul than any teacher ever did, anybody else for that matter. And with him, it was the same thing. He, it's a short book, but it's a beautiful book about the power of the powerless and, and how his uh, brother really made him a human being, you know, a whole human being. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, it's, it's nice that you were able to bring that into this story. Yeah, he was, he yeah. was uh, and you know, it's funny because when we first saw him creeping around the rock, you know, we're little kids on our own, and who is this person? And then it was completely safe. And in fact, probably even safer than would be with other fellows, you know, because... Yeah. There's a, a site on uh, Facebook, um, the thing I told you about before, Ramapo Rails, Tales, and Trails, or something like that. And w- one of my cousins posted a photograph of a bunch of the guys when I was too little to be in the group because they're older. Uh, and they were hanging around the front of an old shop in Hilburn. And there's Fagan right in the middle of them all. And it was neat because I'm reading, I just saw this this morning, in fact, and I'm re- reading the names of the people. And they don't say Norman Dean, they say Fagan. That's, yeah. that's how he was known. Wow. And how do I get to that site? I think it's called Ramapo Rails, Trails, and Tales or something. And like I'll that. put the link in the little blurb at the beginning of this story, too, yeah. just in case anybody Oh, yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah, the, the, uh, great stuff. Yeah. But, but I, you know, this makes me think about how we are talking last week about how we've moved along and we've learned to understand the psychological and, and actual impairments challenge and, uh, and, and not dismiss it and try to work with it and so forth, which is, which is great, and, and that, that's so important. But, you know, in Hilburn, when I was little and there were definitely challenged people, they were very much a part of the community. Uh, diagnosis has gotten better and treatment has gotten better, certainly for a lot of things. But folks who were just a little different, who were a little simple or had uh, a whole other perspective, they were part of the community. And Uncle Mal used to say, you know, we, we, we need them. They, they help make us who we are. And I think it's so interesting, two things about this story, that you, you're building this as a kindergarten story, but that's only because you were of kindergarten age. Nothing about this <laughs> has anything to do with the last two weeks talking about school. Right. And the other thing is how um, I'm surprised, I guess, with what I know from your other stories about Uncle Mal being the one to make that connection. Because he seems to be the one, as is portrayed a lot of times, as the one who's in need of learning the lesson. Yeah. Whatever the story yeah. is. And here he really seems to to be a, ahead of the curve in terms of knowing what's important. It's so true, though. I mean, like I think, again, I'm going back to my sister Ellen, but she brought out the best in so many people. Mm-hmm. I mean, first of all, there was this group of women who who volunteered to drive her to the, because there was only one car in the family back then, and my father was always at work. And and this group of women volunteered to drive Ellie to this little day school for children who were mentally uh, challenged and became friends of my mother, people she never even knew. But 
gave of their heart and of their time. My aunt Rose Casey, as you you, you know Rose Casey, mm-hmm. of course, and mm-hmm. her daughter Roseanne and her son Tom. Uh, Ellie would go up there, and she would have Ellie go up there for vacation sometime for two weeks up in Boston. Wow! You know, wow, up in the projects. Wow. And, yep. you know, there are these beautiful pictures of my cousin Roseanne taking her for walks or my cousin Tom, you know, making her, you know, laugh and things like that. And and I know she made them broader and more beautiful human beings yep. than they already were. And, and, uh, and of course, my Aunt Rose, uh, I, I just, uh, oh God, I love that woman so much for, for the way she made Ellie a human being, a person. Never looked at her as if she was... Less than anything, right. but a, a whole person. Right. And it helped my mom so much, and, you know, it was great. So Ellie, yeah, and, and the neighbors in the yeah. neighborhood, you know, she changed a lot of people, a yeah. lot of people, yeah, yeah. without a single word, never yeah. spoken. Yeah. Yeah, something. Well, this was, uh, this was a wonderful story. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank, Thank you. you for bringing this, these memories back. Um, so next week, what are we going to talk about? Well, next week, uh, I'm afraid I'm still in kindergarten, but, uh, <laughs> next week is, uh, a, a unique little short story that, uh, I haven't published before. It's called ketchup eating contest. Ketchup eating contest. I got a feeling I know how, the, <laughs> how this is going to end up. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us and we'll see you next week for back porch stories. And now for a word from our favorite sponsor, the Montgomery Book Exchange. It's your hometown used bookstore located at 61A Clinton Street in the heart of the Montgomery, New York Business District. Folks, you're going to love the book exchange. This is a place where great books survive the test of time, where you can enjoy a book read by readers a generation before you. You might even find notes in the margins giving you an insight as to what mattered most to that previous reader. That's how the Montgomery Book Exchange turns a great book into a shared experience. And the Montgomery Book Exchange is known throughout the Hudson Valley and beyond for innovations like their 20 for $20 book stacks or their intimate author readings and signing experiences. How about their member-driven book club selections and book club talks, their monthly Zoom and in-person book auctions? and Handmade Montgomery. This is a wonderful event featuring local artisans and hundreds of beautiful handmade crafts and keepsakes. And how about getting store credits in the form of book bucks? Bring your well-loved or gently used books in for a store credit. Now, it's closed on Mondays, but it's open Tuesdays through Saturdays from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. and on Sunday from 12 noon to 4 p.m. Want more information? Just go to MontgomeryBookExchange.com or call them at 845-764-1787. That's 845-764-1787. Now, there's one more thing. They even have a special location at 8 Factory Street dedicated to your young readers. They call it the Children's Chapter, and it features a reading garden where your children can discover the joy of reading in a wonderful and stimulating learning environment. Now, my kids are all 30-something now, but I have four beautiful grandchildren, Jimmy, Sienna, Stella, and JJ, and I'm bringing all four of them down to the Children's Chapter. Also at this location, you'll find Miss Claire's Music Cupboard, featuring the award-winning 
research-based kinder music program. The children's chapter is open Wednesdays through Saturdays. Check the website for specific class times that match your child's age. You can contact the children's chapter at 845-522-9652. MontgomeryBookExchange.com, your hometown used bookstore. You're going to love this place. Backport Stories with Chuck Stett. The song that you hear at the beginning and the end of the episode is Flyer's Rag, composed by Mr. Scott Lewis. Our producer is Joe Serino, and our cover photography is done by Karen Serino. We'll be back with another episode each Friday morning, so please subscribe, click the like button, share with family and friends, and join us each week for another Backport Story.